This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now today we're wrapping up our vision series and we call this Vision Sunday. I mean, this is probably one of the most pivotal Sundays in all the year for us as a church. You're here with us today. We're thankful for that because this kind of unloads what God has been placing in my heart for about a year now. And so every year at this moment, I get to kind of bring this in here and unload it on you guys as we've been working behind the scenes and some of it just kind of sets the stage. There's been pivotal moments that came out of this, and I believe that even today, God has that for us. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about life, but everything tends to start before it starts. You ever notice that? Things begin before they begin. They happen before they happen. It's kind of in a reality in this room right now. Some of you, maybe you're boomers and you decided two or three days ago, maybe a few weeks ago, you were going to be at church this morning. You didn't have to set an alarm clock. You just got up, had your coffee. It was about six. You started getting ready. Then there's some of our millennial families in here. And this morning was a fight because your kids didn't want to get up and your cat threw up on the rug and the wind was blowing just right this morning so you made it to the nine o'clock service. And, but here we are. It happened before it happened. It's, it's true in the sense that at five this morning, there were teams in here setting up stage at seven o'clock. There were people that showed up to assemble what we call a church. It happened before it happened, and it happened for us as a church. It's about 10 years ago, right now, literally within a few weeks, that God dropped the vision of planting a church in Albemarle, in my heart. Literally eight years ago, we moved back within a few weeks of now from uh, Columbia, South Carolina, which is where we had been. I still remember that moment when God dropped that vision as I was sitting at an exit off I-20 to move back to Albemarle and plant a life-giving church. And you know, We started that eight years ago, and on the first Sunday, September the 9th, 2012, 243 people assembled in this room, and 15 people gave their lives to Jesus. And since then, God has just been doing something amazing. See, it all happened before it happened today. But, but it's, it's true even for us as a community. I mean, I mean it, we, we wouldn't even be here if there wasn't a community of people that kind of leveraged for many of us the platform to even establish a life and residence in this place. You ever think about where that came from? It actually started around 1799. 1799 about 30 miles from here, a little less than that, a young boy found a 17-pound gold rock. His father's name was John Reed. And you probably know it because you've probably visited Reed Goldmine. Reed Goldmine is literally the first gold find in the continental United States ever. 
North Carolina led gold production up until the middle of the 1800s. And it started right here. And when that happened, people started to relocate into our part of the world. And the, there was a road that was built from, from Charlotte to Raleigh. It was called Old Turnpike Road. And then there was a road that was built from, from Salisbury to all the way to Fayetteville. It was called Old Stage Road. And those two roads crossed right here. The first post office was built in 1820, 1826. The Stanley County Incorporated in 1841, and the city of Albemarle in 1857. If it wasn't for all that, we wouldn't be here. See, it happened before it happened. It started before it started. But we're not just in a city this morning. We're sitting in the middle of a church, a, a movement of redemption that began before this morning began. Of, of course, a few minutes ago, we started singing songs. But see, this began literally thousands of years ago when God took a man named Abraham and walked him outside and said, look up at the stars, Abraham. I know you've never had any children, but if you will look up, as many stars are in the sky, one day you will have that many children, that many sons. And at 75, Abraham believed God. And 25 years later, when he was 100, it gave birth to his son, Isaac. It wasn't just where it started. You see, when, when this community started to form around 1820, something was happening in the country that we live in. Something was beginning to form and formulate that, that now has shaped where we are, the seats that you sit in. It was called the Second Great Awakening, perhaps the greatest spiritual movement to ever sweep the United States. Literally, whole towns were converted to Christianity. If you've ever seen a picture of a, of a police officer sitting on a corner, perhaps singing in a quartet, it came from that time. As the, the greatest problems that the police would report after crusades had visited communities were, were that, that they had to control the crowds of people going to church. And so as people began to accumulate and create community here, people began to move here with the hope of seeing all that they had experienced in other places happen in the lives of communities that were here. In 1860, there were 25 churches in Stanley County. The total population of Stanley County at that point was around 600. 25 churches that were pastored by five different men. One of them, L.E. Stacy, who was a United Methodist pastor, pastored 11 different churches. Sometimes I think this vision that God's dropped in our hearts of one church that meets in multiple locations, that's led centrally but expressed locally, that that somehow would be unique to us, but it seems as if Several hundred years ago, that vision was already here and working. 
is these men moved to Stanley County because they believed that God loved the people that were here. And they began to work to dig a well spiritually that would feed and water all the people that were here, realizing that it is that spiritual nourishment that keeps us alive. But as a pastor who planted this church a little over seven years ago, I can tell you that that wasn't easy. I've seen people walk through seasons that were beyond difficult. Heartbreak that would crush all of us. Pain that was beyond significant. Illness that would eventually lead to death. I can't imagine what it would have been like in that era. In an agricultural community in the middle of the 1800s, the greatest epidemic facing the United States was drunkenness. See, our farmers would plant and then they would have several months off. And they would go on binge drunks. And I can imagine the, the, the pain that would have been in having worked to help someone find freedom. And then to only see them fall back into the same patterns. To work to, to help someone find life in Christ. But to see that eroded as they begin to walk away. There, there is no journey like this without significant pain and loss. And they would have experienced it as they attempted to dig the wells in the community that we live in. See, I read a story as I was studying for this message. It comes out of Genesis, and it reminds me of perhaps what God is doing in our midst. It comes from Genesis 26, and it deals with Abraham's son. Abraham has now passed away. Uh, now the, the adult leader of their family is Isaac, his son. And something happens at the very beginning of Genesis 26 that you might be familiar with. Things that were once easy became very difficult. Genesis 26, verse 1, records the setting for the story that we're going to talk about today. It says, a severe famine now struck the land, as had happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved. In those days, the people who were living in those areas were heavily dependent on rain. If it didn't rain, you couldn't live because there was no water. And so as the, the drought and then the famine hit, Isaac was forced to relocate and it seems that that would be a setting for significant trial, but that's not what God had planned. As a matter of fact, Isaac moves away and moves under the protection of another king. And as he's working and serving and living, he begins to farm and he becomes a rancher. And God thoroughly blesses everything that he's doing. As a matter of fact, Isaac becomes significantly wealthy. And his new wealth provokes fear and distrust and hostility among the people groups that are around him, especially the Philistines. The Philistines we're going to come to see throughout the whole narrative of the Old Testament really become uh, those who are the antagonist of what God is doing. They, they represent the enemy as the enemy comes against the work of God. 
Goliath was a Philistine. So the Philistines do something in verse 15. Pay attention to this. So the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt. These were the wells that had been dug by the servants of his father, Abraham. In an attempt, while he had moved away, to force Isaac to never return because of his growth and blessing and wealth, the Philistines went into their place, into their land, and took all the wells and filled them in with dirt. And then the story is provoked because many of us would just be like, well, why not just stay where you are? If God's blessing you there, I mean, why don't you just stay there? But that's not what happens. See, God uses a very difficult situation to provoke what he's going to show us. The king that has been protecting and hosting Isaac comes to him now out of fear and anxiety and says, Isaac, you've grown too wealthy. You must leave. There's no way that you can stay here anymore. And so Isaac is facing a decision. Do I leave? Do I take the abundance and the provision that God has given me? Or do I go home where it's not going to be easy? Where it's going to be challenging? And he goes home. And in verse 18, we see what I really want to focus on today. That Isaac reopened the wells of his father. He reopened the wells his father had dug which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names that Abraham had given them. See, each of these wells was dug with such intentionality. God did something every time. That, and, and because of that, Abraham named each well. And so Isaac doesn't just return home. He returns home and redigs the wells that his father had dug. And he goes back to that purpose that laid behind that moment. And he says, you know what? Not only are we going to do that, we're going to believe that what God began, he's going to continue. See, I want you to remember this. Everything starts before it starts. It is really easy to look at this and go, man, God is doing something amazing through Isaac. But it was Abraham's faithfulness that paid the way for Isaac's abundance. It was Abraham's faithfulness that paid the way for Isaac's abundance. I want you to hear this if you're a parent in here. I want you to listen to me real carefully. Your faithfulness sets a platform for your children. Your faithfulness sets a platform for your children. You can create a platform for them to stand on with your faithfulness. We see this with Abraham. Abraham created opportunities for Isaac. And look what the Lord said earlier in that chapter about this. He said, this is him speaking to Isaac. He says, I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars in the sky, revisiting that promise he made to Abraham. And I will give them all these lands, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this. Why? Not because you're amazing. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. 
I will do that. And you have to understand that that was the backdrop that informed the decision that Isaac would make to say, I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to take what God's done and go my own way. No, God told me that he's given me this land, and so I'm going to return to it, and I'm going to take what he told me he was going to give me. See, all vision requires work. All vision requires work. And if you're not willing to do the work, you will never experience the fruit of the vision. G.K. Chesterton said this, and and some of us, maybe you're in here and you're going, I've heard Christians claim peace, and I've heard that Christians claim power, but I've never experienced that. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. No one has ever tried the claims of Christianity and found them wanting, but they have found the claims difficult and left them untried. If you won't work the vision, the vision won't work. Isaac took the vision that God had gave him and poured his life into it and returned to open the wells that his father had dug. But also remember this, and this story shows us so beautifully, that we have enemies that want to destroy what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. The Philistines represent that. They represent a group of people that were trying to literally come against what God was doing. But you and I, in this world, have enemies. Think about what they did. Think about, think about it for a moment. They, they took something that was good, and they put it in between themselves and the blessing. In, in those days, it was a really big deal to own land. Dirt equaled power. Dirt was where you could farm. Dirt was where you could raise animals. Dirt was where you could raise a family. But they took dirt and put it in between them and something that they needed even more, which was water. Have you ever noticed that we do that? That we take what is a good thing and they put, we, we put it in between us and what is the best thing. What's a good thing that you've allowed to come between you and what you really need? Oh, I'm sure that you need friends. But some of us right now, we're saying, you know what? I really need to improve my relationship with my spouse. You know what? Are you letting a good thing come in between your best thing? Some of us would say right now, you know what? I, I really need to get better financially. I need some more discipline. But I loved going out and having fun. There's nothing wrong with going out and having fun. But are you letting that good thing get in between you and the best thing? What's a good thing that you've allowed to come between you and what you really need? Can I just speak to that as a parent? It is so easy in our culture to let our kids become the object of our hope and vision. Often because we pray and hope for them, believe for them, and, and then they show up and they're incredibly needy for a couple years, and then they're incredibly challenging for a couple years.
but you need a source of security and purpose that's a lot bigger than your children because one day they're moving out of your house. And if your identity is wrapped up in them, it's going to get really ugly at that point. What good thing have you let come in between you and what you really need? Can we spend a few moments talking about the wells in our life? If you're taking notes, this is the first thing I want you to see, that we often look for other wells. We often, in our, in our lives, we often look for other wells. We might call it the grass is greener syndrome, right? We all experience that. I've got a car. It works. I can put the key in, crank it up, and drive where I need to go. But that other car is so amazing. I want that. And I'm willing to pay thousands of dollars to get that other car. The house that I live in is quite nice, but did you see that other house? Man, I would kill to live in that house. The grass is greener. We become enamored with things that we don't have. Have you ever noticed this, what's going on in those moments? We, we actually underappreciate what we have and desire what we don't. Sometimes we, we look at, if you're married, we, we look at other people and we say, man, I just wish my spouse could be like that. And we overlook all the things that our spouse brings to the table every day. We look at other jobs and say, man, I wish I could. I wish that I had that. And we overlook all the benefits that we're living in right now. It's simply the refusal to be content in the blessings that God has given you right now. Jeremiah 2.13 speaks to this, and I want you to think about this with me this morning, about where you are in your heart. Jeremiah has just leveraged a massive judgment. I mean, he has just obliterated what, what's going on in, in Israel. And then he gives the reason why God is about to judge them, and he says this. For my people have done two evil things, two things. The first one, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. That's one, they've abandoned me. And number two, they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. See, all too often, we find ourselves in that first category where we know that our ultimate hope needs to rest in Jesus, but we find ourselves hoping in other things. That our ultimate faith needs to lie in who God is, but we find ourselves putting faith in other things. We look to other wells. But I want you to see this about the wells in our life. Number two, neglected wells become corrupted. Neglected wells become corrupted. That verse that we just said, where, where Jeremiah says, that you, you neglected me. God says, I, I was, I'm the, the well of, of living water. It's never going to run dry. And you've replaced me with cisterns that have cracked plaster in them. In those days, the, the idea of digging literally hundreds of feet underneath the ground to, build, to kind of dig out a well wasn't the way that it worked. What, what they would do is they would dig into the rock around a natural spring, and they would go in and they would take plaster and line that so that when the water began to run, they would actually fill that up, and the plaster would keep the, the water there cool, and it would keep it safe. But as the plaster began to crack, the water would have impurities leak into it, and then the water itself would begin to leak out. 
Jeremiah was saying. Not only did you look for other wells, but you have neglected taking care of the wells that you have. A neglected well is going to become corrupted. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Progress always requires change. If, if you want a, a better relationship with your spouse, you got to change the way you do marriage. If you want a better situation financially, you got to change the way you do money. If you want better friendships, healthier friendships, you got to change the way you do friendships. There's no way to make progress if you're not willing to change. I want you to think about this. Because some of you need to hear this today. You need to hear it in your soul, not just with your ears. Only a fool thinks they can do what they've always done. Only a fool thinks they can do what they've always done. What's worked up to now may have worked up to now, but it will not work forever. And if you're not willing to change... What will happen is what you have been doing will no longer yield the results that you've had in the past. This is just true practically. I don't know if anybody gave you the bulletin this week, but you're getting older. Some of y'all are like, I feel it. I felt it when I woke up at 5 o'clock with no alarm to get my coffee. I know some of y'all are there. But as we get older, the things that we used to be able to do, we can no longer do. I can't eat the way I ate 15 years ago. I can't stay up the way I used to do. I can't go all week the way that I used to go. Only a fool thinks they can always do what they've always done. See, if you refuse change, you're refusing to make progress. If you want a better marriage and you're refusing to change the way you do marriage, you won't make progress. If you want a better relationship with the Lord, but you're not willing to change the way you live, you're not going to get what you want. Because neglected wells become corrupted. Number three, we often find our wells covered. Well, this is true. Some of us have experienced that. We live in the country, and so many of us have wells at home, right? And you might remember the day that they came to dig that well. It was covered. It was covered, right? That's what happened. They went in and dug that thing, and now you have fresh water. That's how wells work. But any well that's left untended will eventually be covered. Any well in your life that is left untended, will eventually be covered. This is true for us personally, and it is true for us as communities. If I'm going to be really honest with you, we live in a community that in many ways has resisted change. And because we've resisted change, we've resisted progress. This has happened on every level. It's happened in our churches. It's happened in our community with our government. It's happened everywhere. And because the wells in our communities in many ways 
have not been tended. They have been covered. You can't look at the statistics on opioid deaths in our community compared to the rest of the state and not realize that we're living in a traumatic era in our community. And while there are great initiatives happening all around we also need to wake up as a church and realize that the greatest hope that the communities in our place have is not simply programs, it's Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why eight years ago we moved back to plant this church, and that's why I'm here to tell you today that we will redig the wells in communities throughout Central North Carolina. We will. I want you to think about this. Just think about this with me. How, how many people have had their eternities altered because of that decision eight years ago? Literally people who are now going to heaven who weren't eight years ago. There are some of you that the answer to the prayers that you prayed decades before, years before, happened in obedience from a group of people who said, I'm willing to do this. And since I know the numbers, but you know the stories. How many lives have been changed? And how many more are depending on us in this next season? Think about this. How many people are struggling with an addiction right now, and they're reaching out to God. God, I need help. I need help. And the answer to his prayer is what God's going to do through you. How many families are in crisis right now? Literally right now, and they're on their knees going, God, I don't know how we're going to get through this. We just need your help. And the answer to their prayers is what God is going to do through you what God's going to do as he moves through this church, as we step into this next season and we open a campus in downtown, as we begin to work to say that the wells of these cities, the wells of the communities that we live in are worth being redug because we believe that people matter and they matter everywhere. And we're here to make sure it happens. We started this series with the word relentless. I want to go back to that. I want you to think about this. Let's break it down into its parts just one more time. Re, the prefix, which means to do it again. To redig means to go back to dig again. Lent, the root of the word, is a form of the verb to lend, which means to give up. And for many of us, that's where life has kind of drifted for, for a while. It, it's, we, we give up again. We had the same vision, the same call, I had the same desire, and I went for it, but I gave up again. But that suffix changes the entire meaning of the word, less, to be without to be people who refuse to give up, who refuse to give up on what God is doing, what God has called us to, what God believes in us for. What would our communities look like if we refuse to give up on everything that Jesus wants for us? What would this city, this county, what would Norwood, Mount Gilead, Troy, New London, Oakboro, what would they look like if we refused to give up on what God is doing through us? 
And we have the same choice Isaac had. God's done something amazing. Never would have thought that we'd end up here just seven years later. I've had to repent so many times for having a dream that was too small for what God wanted to do in us. But here we are. We have the same choice. We could take the abundance that God has provided and we could go do our own thing. Or we can take what God has done and what God's given us and we can go into these communities and redig the wells. Maybe, maybe we've resisted change. And maybe what God began with that pastor was a pastor in 11 churches in the 1860s is something that God is doing again. I don't begin to understand. What I do know is that every community within driving distance of here deserves a life-giving church. And we're going to stand and believe that through us, God can do it. We are willing to pay the price to redig the wells. There are some of you in here saying, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to help redig the wells. Let me give you three things today that you can do to help redig the wells. To redig the wells, the first thing that you need to do is you need to serve. There are some of us that are in here. And in the past, you've served, kind of stepped up for a season, and that season got a little complicated. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's time to serve again. In this room, there's a lot of talent that is not being leveraged right now for the betterment of the kingdom of God as God works through his church. The church is only its best when its people step up and leverage their talents for the good of what God is doing. And we will never be as good as we can be when you're on the sideline. Serve. Number two, give. Give. And that's being willing to not hold your resources with closed fists, willing to hold them with open hands, being willing to say, God, whatever it would cost me, I want you to do something amazing. There are people that eight years ago gave extremely sacrificially so that you could find this place. It's our turn to do that for those people that are praying to God right now and asking for hope in this next season. Give. Our church will never be as resourced as it should be until every person that's a part of us gives the way that they should. And if you really want to help redig the wells, number three, redig the well in your own heart. Because every well that's left untended will eventually be covered. Every well that's left untended will eventually be covered. And we need to be willing to, as a part of our spiritual growth, redig the well that's in our own heart. 
And if you're confused about what that looks like, let me just say this. Jesus is our well, and he never runs dry. Ever. He would say it this way in his own words in John 4 as he spoke to that woman at the well, a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. Jesus replied to her, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. A few chapters later, Jesus is going to expand on that idea. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, the church is powerful because when we walk out of this room, we are wells. We are wells. We are the people that God is springing forth from within, serving the people that are around. We are the, and we become that as we're willing to redig the wells in our own heart. Today, it's my prayer that God will birth within us a resiliency to never give up on the communities that we serve, to believe that it is within our lives that we're going to get to see the wells redug, that a life-giving church will belong in every community, and we get to be a part of that. That's why we're here. That's why we're planting a campus downtown. That's why we believe that that's only just the start. And we get to be a part of that. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.